And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. And his head's seven diadems, or seven uh, um, crowns. And his tail swept down a third of the stars in heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule, and to the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God into his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she, was, um, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer a place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. The accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and see, for the devil has come down with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings on the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent in the wilderness. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth, and the woman swept her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river, and the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sands of the sea. Shall we pray? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you now because we don't have the answers. We watch as our nation is um, on edge, suffering. We are in isolation of an enemy we cannot see. But Father, we can trust our God. We can trust our sovereign God who is moving and is working. Our God who is good, who is a covenant-keeping God. Father, we come to you this morning and we confess that often we turn to things that cannot protect us. We turn to things that cannot provide for us. Things that are sinful, but also things that are good. 
Father, we turn to the government, we turn to our leaders, we turn to medicine, we turn to insurance, we turn to science, we turn to technology, we turn to distancing ourselves away from others. But we realize all of those answers are not suitable and they are not sufficient. We must turn our hearts to the maker of heaven and earth who holds all things in his hands. Father, he holds our church. He holds our families. He holds our medical professionals. He holds those that are, have been infected with COVID-19. Father, he holds the hearts of those who have lost loved ones to this disease, this, uh, influ- this sickness. Father, we come to you because we don't have the answers. And we open up this strange and wonderful text that we may hear the voice of our God who says, trust me, I am your light, I am your salvation, I am your stronghold, whom shall you fear? Father, may we trust you and sing in, for joy of our salvation. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray, amen. Maybe seated. If you're not there already, go to Revelation chapter 12. Anna, would you bring me the clicker? It's on that uh, stand in front of the television. When you open up uh, Revelation chapter 12, uh, you read through it and you might think this is a strange text to be reading. And sometimes you study these things and try to figure out where the course of the events of the end of the world will happen. Our eschatology, we build charts, we build maps, we uh, predict outcomes, and many have come and they have created systems where they said, Jesus will be coming back on such and such a day when these things happen. And time and time again, as we have demonstrated, they have been incorrect. And sometimes in our desire to figure out the mystery of such a text, we miss the heart of our God. The heart of our God who is teaching us. And uh, the heart of our God who is saying, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of suffering, I have the world in my hands. I am sovereign and I am good and I am working. This morning, I want to give you my big idea. I want you to know uh, this, that... um, Anne, if you would turn that TV uh, back there, the big one. The big idea this morning is simply this. The victory of the cross empowers the endurance of God's people. The victory of the cross empowers the endurance of of God's people. We, I want you to see this morning uh, two ways as I've divided the text. One, in verses 1 through 6, that we are called to trust the provision of the Lord, to trust the provision of the Lord, and treasure the blood of the Lamb. To treasure the blood of the Lamb. I want you to see The first part of verse 6 is this, is to call to trust the provision of the Lord. Notice verses 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. 
She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony. verse 1 of chapter 12, there is this incredible, strange, and unusual sign that happens uh, that John, the uh, apostle, witnesses as he looks on this uh, apocalyptic vision he has. And one thing we have to realize that that these, this text is a heavenly perspective of an earthly happening. And so what John sees is this vision that's unfolding before him, and he looks at that, and he's trying to communicate what he's seeing. And each thing that he sees is strange and wonderful and mysterious and confusion, but he writes it down, and as we read through it, understanding it, we try to understand what the Lord is revealing to us about his heart and about our experience in this chapter of Revelation chapter 12. But notice this first sign that he sees is a woman. And she is clothed in radiant light. And she's adorned by the sun and by the moon. And yet, she's in distress. As Amanda Kiefer probably knows all well, the distress of giving birth. And so she is giving birth, but there's something radiant about this, uh, this woman that captivates John's attention. And the first thing that it says is that she's clothed with the sun. And this is demonstrating, as we already see earlier in the book, if we were to go through, we went through it a few years ago, the first three chapters, but the radiance, this light that is emanating from her is the glory of God. And then we see three symbolic aspects of her. You see this sun and the moon. And it's this sun and the moon is demonstrating that she, her identity is not on earth. Her identity is in the, uh, the, the heavens and her identity is not tied to what is happening on earth to the, the dangers and the struggles and the temptations that are going on on earth. But yet she's experiencing those things. And then you see the fact that there's 12 stars and that's 12 is symbolic of the 12 tribes of the old covenant and the and 12 apostles of the new covenant. This people of God throughout the generations. And then you see this crown. She it holds a place of honor in the kingdom of God. But then you immediately ask, who is this woman? Is this woman Mary who gave birth to a son who's to rule the nations? That's probably Mary, right? Or could it possibly be Eve who received the promise that the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent? Surely it, it, it could be one of them. I don't believe it is. Because notice as John later on in the text, he unfolds and he explains who this woman is. Notice verse 17. And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. 
This woman in Revelation chapter 12 represents the faithful covenant people of God, faithful Israel and the true church. And she is this, as you one commentator says, the messianic covenant who the people who will bring forth the Messiah and the people who will follow the Messiah. This offspring of this woman, the king, Christ, but also the faithful men and women who are brought forth from this community. And she will bring forth this child in verse 5, it says, who will rule the nations. And actually, uh, it's the Greek word for shepherd, who will shepherd the nations with a rod of iron. She, not him yet, is the focus of our text in verses 1 through 6. But then immediately, John not only sees this first great symbol, but he sees another one. Another frightening, terrifying, grotesque symbol that he sees. Notice in uh, verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. I can imagine John was looking at the first, this beautiful woman who was captivating and radiant, and then he sees this hideous creature. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and with, on his head was seven diadems. Whenever we read throughout scripture from the beginning through end, you see that um, these creatures, monsters of the deep and dragons and leviathans are often symbolic for all the people who stand in opposition to God and his kingdom and his people. And this dragon in Revelation chapter 12 is no exception. His body, as John looks at it, is stained red by the blood of the people of, the God, of God who he has murdered. His seven heads symbolize his perfect authority and vision by which he watches his creation. His ten horns, like the horn of a rhinoceros or a ram or a, a buck, uh, are like the horns that symbolize complete unrivaled power in his domain here on earth. And then you see his seven crowns symbolize his complete tyrannical reign here on earth. And as we're reading, brothers and sisters, this dragon should strike fear in the heart of the people of God. But why? Why, you might ask. Because all who desire to be faithful to the commandments of God and to follow Jesus Christ are public enemy number one of this dragon. This dragon, the people of God will stand face to face with this dragon and his, his demons and his kingdom. But who is the dragon? Who is this dragon who should uh, strike fear in the hearts of the faithful? These kingdoms who have rose and fall throughout the history of mankind that have persecuted the church and the people of God from Egypt to Babylon to Rome. Rulers who have persecuted the church from Nero to Mohammed to Pol Pot. Ideologies who have uh, strictly opposed the kingdom of God, who have stood in opposition to God and his kingdom pagan gods and Marxist totalitarianism and new atheists that rattles the cages and, go, and opposes the people of God. 
But it's not just staunch opponents of God that have opposed the people of God. It's where false theologies have perverted and tainted and theological heresies that the people have embraced thinking they're following the one true God. Racism and nationalism, moralism and higher criticism. The dragon is every spirit in every age who have opposed the kingdom of God and his people. Yet behind every dragon that has opposed and attacked the people of God, there is one evil spirit, one common enemy. Notice verse 9 that opens up. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. Every threat and every persecution and every murderous intention is the work and spirit of Satan who seeks only to destroy God, his work, and his people. And he will, not, he will stop at nothing to be able to stop God's work of redemption. But notice the end of verse 4. It says this, this grotesque picture. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore the child, he may devour it. The dragon lies in wait with murderous intentions as the woman rise in the great pains of labor. His sole intention is to devour the child the moment he is born. Why? Because this child is the first and greatest threat to his kingdom. Notice verse 5, she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But in this unexpected twist in the text, but the child, her child was caught up to God in his throne. This child is the ultimate rival to the dragon's thorn Uh, thrown into his authority. The child is the snake crusher that was promised to Eve. This child is the offspring of Abraham who bless all the nations. This child is the heir of David who will sit on God's eternal throne. The dragon will stop at nothing to destroy this child. And as he unfurls his lethal attack, he misses. He fails. That rival king that will rule the nations is swept out of the the reach of the dragon into heaven to the throne room of God himself beyond the reaches and the authority of the dragon. The child is safe, seated at the right hand of the father. But the woman is not so fortunate. Notice verse 6, and it says, The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Ocean Park, when we read stories like this, we get excited about um, prophecy and end time charts and predictions. It's very Hollywood-esque. But I fear often when we read through this text, we pay too much attention to our our eschatological systems, our, our understanding, our theology of the end times, and we miss the heart of our very God. There are two things that in this verse, I even had somebody text me, what does these, what does this mean? Two things that are very important here, the wilderness and 1,260 days. 
The wilderness, as we saw as we go through the book of Mark, the wilderness is, throughout Scripture, is not a place of comfort and ease. It's a place of danger. It's a place of difficulty. It's a place of want. It's not a safe place. Yet this is, the wilderness is where God was leading his people. And then he was leading, as John says, for 1,260 days. And many times when we look at these numbers, we try to attempt and figure out if we put them into our theological system, the grinder, and twist it, we'll come out with an answer. But I think really, what we, as we see here, we have to ask the question, what were John's readers thinking? John's readers were uh, looking back at the book of Daniel. In the book of Daniel, it talks about the fourth beast who will be given authority, who will unfurl um, suffering and persecution on the people of God until the Ancient of Days steps in and puts an end to that and delivers his people. Daniel's prophecy echoed in the minds of the readers when they hear 1,260 days. But the question is, why was that? Well, as Americans, to give you an example, what do you think of when you hear the six words, four score and seven years ago? You think immediately the Gettysburg Address that was given by Abraham Lincoln at the um, Gettysburg National Monument of the graves of the soldiers that had died. And D.A. Carson explains, like Americans when they hear these numbers and associated with a time like the Civil War of bitter unrest and hatred between the North and the South, these people think of a time when uh, the first century readers remember the tyrannical reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. For three and a half years, Antiochus Epiphanes um, wreaked havoc and murder upon the Jews. He slaughtered countless people. He banned uh, religious worship. He um, even said it is not legal to be able to have a copy of God's word or read it and, or to be a priest. To add blasphemy to his reign, he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God in the temple. And for three and a half years, Israel, led by the Maccabees, uh, fought against Antiochus until finally they were able to defeat him, send him away, and reinstitute, reinstitute temple worship in, the church, in, the, in Israel. Uh, it's the time that they celebrate Hanukkah. So when Americans think here four score and seven years ago, they think of the bloody battles of the Civil War and the animosity between the North and the South. When the first century Jew hears 1,260 days by Daniel and by their experience as a people, they begin to think of the intense persecution before God delivered his people. And so as John watches these symbols, this this strange uh, story unfolding before he his miss he takes the 1260 days and links it from that time between Christ's ascension till he returns again to vanquish his en enemy and he's using this 1260 days to describe the great suffering and persecution that the people of God will experience at the hands of the dragon Yet in the midst of the battle, in the suffering, in the persecution, God sustains his people by the provision uh, that he gives from his hand. The people of God, the woman, 
in this story would survive because God provided for his people. Ocean Park, it's the wilderness. It's the wilderness where we learn that God is all we have, all we need, because God is all we have. It's the wilderness where we learn that God is all we need because God is all we have. The wilderness is the place where God's people encounter the hearts of God. This week I had called Donna Proya and we were talking uh, about what's going on. She has lost her job uh, because of this virus, uh, prayerfully just temporarily. And, we were, and I, I alluded to the wilderness where God leads us and provides us and takes care of us like the good shepherd that he is. And she said something that was very profound. She says, the wilderness provides clarity. Because the wilderness, in those times of need, and it's in those times of need where we truly taste the sweetness of God's provision. When all the functional saviors, when all the other places, all the broken uh, pot sheards that we go all to be able to satisfy ourselves cannot satisfy and cannot provide, when there is nothing that can sustain us in the midst of the wilderness, it's the heart of God who sustains us by his mercy and grace. As the psalmist says, his mercies are new every morning. One of the songs we'll be singing after the sermon today is um, the old song from about 250 years ago that Sovereign Grace Music has brought back. And it says this, Afflicted saint to Christ draw near, your Savior's promise here. Your Savior's gracious promise here. His faithful word you can believe. And here's the promise of God's grace. That as your days, your strength shall be. The chorus says this. It says, so sing with joy, afflicted one. The battle's fierce, but the victory's won. God shall supply all that you need. Yes, as your days, your strength will be. Brothers and sisters, friends, the wilderness in the times of suffering and difficulty is where we learn to trust the heart of God, to be satisfied on his provision, to, uh, to know that because he is our shepherd, he is all we need. In the wilderness, we learn that the victory of the cross empowers the endurance of God's people. The victory of the cross empowers the endurance of God's people. We are called that in the wilderness, we trust the provision of God in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, and in the midst of those times to treasure the blood of the lamb, to treasure the blood of the lamb. As we go on and we move to verse 7, we see uh, the perspective from heaven. All the while, the woman, the church, the fa those faithful to the promises of God and following Christ, they are suffering, they are battling, but they have no idea about the war that is raging in heaven. Uh, uh, the, is the same way that Job had no idea what was going on, though the Chaldeans had slaughtered his children, though he had lost all that he had, that his goods and resources are gone, and his body had been touched. He had no idea about the drama that was unfolding in heaven. And in verse 7, the, the woman, and the church, the faithful Israel, the people of God have no idea what's going on. 
Notice verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael, the archangel, and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, and the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. On June 6, 1944, some 156,000 Americans and British and Canadian forces landed on the beaches of about a 50-mile island, 50-mile stretch in the Normandy region of France. The invasion was one of the largest amphibious assaults in history and what historians call the beginning of the end of World War II. For less than 12 months later, Hitler had committed suicide and the remaining German forces surrendered on May 8, 1945. But from that period of D-Day when our boys landed on the shores of Normandy and and, uh, staked a foothold in Europe to the time that the German forces resisted, it was not easy. In fact, the bloodiest days of World War II were between the day that cinched or clinched the victory for the Allied forces to the day uh, that victory became official. The costliest day, the costliest battle ever fought in the history of the United States was the Battle of the Bulge. Hitler was desperate. His time was running out. He was angry, and he unfurled uh, uh, hatred upon the American forces uh, unseen in the history of mankind. And the United States Army and the Allies suffered over 100 thousand casualties that that in that battle though Hitler's doom had been sealed on D-Day he fought bitterly until his final defeat on V-E day in the same way in Revelation chapter 12 there is a shift in the story from 6 to 7 where the scene uh, the director pulls the camera up to heaven where you see the angels of God battling against the dragon and against uh, the dragon's uh, uh, demons and John watches in amazement as this battle rages before his eyes and ultimately Satan and his demons are cast down. But you might ask the question, some of you might say, why is Satan in heaven? I thought heaven was a happy place. Why is Satan there? Now, I want you to notice uh, what Satan is doing. It says, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and is Satan. And notice that last Last phrase, the deceiver of the whole world. And then it continues in verse 10 at the end. The accuser of the brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. We see in scripture that in, there were times when the, Satan was able to come into the throne room of God and accuse the people of God of sin and corruption. We see it. Uh, in his words before God on behalf of Job, and he says, does Job fear God for no reason? You bless him. Of course he's going to be faithful to you. 
But now Satan has been defeated, he's been cast out of heaven, and he's been confined to, his, to earth, where it, now he stalks his prey like a hungry lion stalking someone to devour. Why? Because fear is re- restricted. His time is short. His success is limited. And what caused this happen? What wrought this change? What was this great spiritual D-Day that limited the sphere of Satan and his men? This passage tells us it was the blood of the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, Ocean Park, every blessing we have is built on the lamb of the blood of the lamb. We can't simply stand against the forces of Satan who know us better than we know ourselves. His theology is better and deeper and broader. His, his ability is far surpasses we are. We are outmatched by Satan. And Satan now, because he cannot stand before God, accuses us day and night He points out every every ugly word, every sinful deed, every impure motive, every good that we've left undone and says, you don't deserve it, you wretch. And the reality is that we don't have any leg to stand on because his accusations are true. So how? So how do we overcome the attacks and the accusations of Satan? Scripture tells us in verse 11, And they have conquered him, Satan. How? What is the foundation? What is the basis? What is the grounds of our victory? Not ourselves, our own morality, our own power, our own strength. By the blood of the Lamb. The only hope that we have is to cling to the cross where Jesus Christ defeated our sin. He conquered our enemy. He paid for, uh, to make us, bring us peace with God, that justification that we talked about. He was the propitiation. He paid the sacrifice, the payment, the legal requirements. One of the great songs that I love to sing is uh, be called Before the Throne of God Above. And it talks about this reality. It says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, all true. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The victory of the cross has freed us from the accusations of our enemies. The freedom, the victory of the cross has given us life and victory. It enables us to reign as priests and kings in God's kingdom. It has given us authority to resist Satan and his accuser. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing if we don't have the cross. Ocean Park in these times of despair, in this time of wilderness that we wander, do not despair against this battle of Satan. Why? He can battle us against our bodies and against our minds, but he can't touch our soul. Our souls belong to Jesus. When we suffer, 
We have to remind ourselves, we have to speak truth to ourselves in the midst of difficulties and trials and and hardship and temptation. We have to remember that we are suffering not because Satan is winning, because we often feel that way. I'm suffering because Satan is winning. No, rather, our suffering is evident that God's people have been delivered by the triumph of the cross. Like the German forces in the Battle of the Bulge, Satan knew he had been defeated and he unfurls all the more his bitter wrath against God and his people, knowing that he can't touch Christ, but he will battle and, and, and rage against Christ's people. Martin Luther, in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, wrote these words, and he said, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. Because of the blood of the lamb, his rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure, one little word shall fell him. Brothers and sisters, The cross is everything. The cross is how we overcome the accusers of Christians, our guilty consciences, our bad tempers, our defeats, our lust, our fears, our pettiness. We conquer those not by our own ability, our own merit, our own faithfulness. We have conquered those by the blood of the Lamb. And we can only approach a holy God praying in the name of Jesus. Each element of the, uh, only because the name of Jesus in his blood has secured the victory against Satan and his forces. But not only do we conquer by the blood of the lamb, but verse 11 continues, it says 11b, and by the word of their testimony. This is not just telling my testimony of how it come to Jesus for they love not their lives even unto death. The testimonies is the word of God that the people of God have articulated and, and, and proclaimed. Last uh, summer, uh, we had VBS, and we learned about the different pieces of the armor of God. Did we not, Crosby? And you have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel, and you had the shield of faith. And there was one, those are all defensive weapons. There's one offensive weapon that we have, and that's the word of God, the sword of the spirit. And John sees this enemy advancing on the people of God. He sees the victory that has been secured by the blood and the people of God advance against Satan and his dragon by the word of God, by the testimony that they proclaim. The kingdom of God advances when the people of God bear witness to the truth of the word of God and the victory of the Lamb of God that brings us peace. It is our only weapon that we have to be able to lift the bondages of oppression and to free ourselves from the accusations of Satan. And brothers and sisters, when we bear witness to the gospel, we are pledging the sword of the spirit into the heart of Satan. But as we know from studying history of war, hand-to-hand combat is bitter and it's difficult, and it's bloody. 
And I want you to notice at the end of verse 11, those who had bore testimony, who have loved the, the, the blood of the lamb and bore testimony, love not their lives even unto death. There are many who will die as martyrs, as witnesses to the blood of the lamb, the victory of Christ, and proclaimed it, and they will lose their lives because of it. And often when we see that, we think somehow Satan was victorious in that battle. But as the, if you were to survey the forces of Arnais after the Battle of the Bulge, this dense, thick woods uh, forest in Germany that was riddled and destroyed by the armies, you would see and you would believe by looking around at the damage and the casualties that the United States have lost the war. 20,000 men lay dead. 80,000 were wounded in this battle. But a larger war was taking place than just the Battle of the Bulge. And and as Hitler's armies were being chased to Berlin and ultimately defeated, the enemies of God are being defeated every day that the people of God battle by the word of God and the blood of the Lamb. In Revelation 12 and then today, when we look around, we see um, what we perceive as losses. Immorality is being celebrated. Faith in Christ is being ridiculed. Deconversions of our children are multiplying. Persecutions are mounting. But the promises of, the God, of God is this. Not even death, not even what we think as losses that are happening can separate us from the love of God and can invalidate the truth of the gospel. Don't be surprised when Satan hates the people of God and his rage is unleashed upon them. It cannot touch our Savior who is safe in heaven, reigning and ruling. The rage of Satan is costly. It will cost us if we are faithful to the testimony of Christ. It will cost us relationships and opportunities. It will sometimes cost us our jobs, our comfort, our respect of others, even for some, our life. But Ocean Park, take heart. Everything you lose for Christ on this earth was nothing that you could hold for eternity. Do not lose heart. Don't quit. Don't give up. Trials will come. Persecutions will multiply. You will be mocked and Christ your Savior will be ridiculed. But the victory of the Lamb of God was secured at the cross to bring you peace with God. Treasure every precious word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is your life. It is your hope. It is your victory. Because as we stand and see that the victory of the cross empowers the endurance of God's people. The victory of the cross empowers the endurance of God's people. When we trust the provisions of the Lord and we treasure the blood of the Lamb. In closing, sometimes you may wonder, what does a text, apocalyptic text a text like this, why did, would you pick that? Because in this Advent season, or not Advent, that's Christmas, in this Lenten season leading up to Easter, as we are feeling the heaviness of a world that is uh, tainted by sin, we must remember two things, that the wilderness is not beyond the grace of God. 
COVID-19, emotional stress, unemployment, worry for our loved ones, uh, a weak uh, faith, loneliness, weakness, confusion, guilt, and sorrow. God will give you what you need in the midst of the wilderness. He will give you when you need it and the amount that you need. Brothers and sisters, trust Jesus in this wilderness that we are in. He knows what he's doing. In my readings, I came across this sweet text out of um, Deuteronomy, towards the, uh, in the middle of Deuteronomy. Moses is charging his people and telling him, you're going to face troubles, but take care lest you forget your God. And I believe he's telling us this morning, Ocean Park, take care lest you forget your God. Your God who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought the water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you. And notice the end, what he's doing in the wilderness to do you good in the end. If you belong to Jesus this morning, You may have stumbled across this feed. You may uh, be wondering what is going on. What could uh, a church possibly say in the midst of this confusion and chaos of this world? I'm telling you this morning from our text, if you belong to Jesus, you can have courage in the face of fear. You cannot have courage to trust the promises of God unless the, the wilderness is frightful. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Turn to him today. For the first time, some of you may be thinking, I've never known about this Jesus. I've never considered that. And all of you, maybe your, your faith has grown weak. You've been distracted. You've wandered. Turn to Jesus and repent again today. Repent of your self-reliance. Repent of your wandering. Repent of your um, seeking pleasure and your own glory. Turn from those and turn to Christ. Trust the promises of God that Jesus' blood secured the victory that you may have peace with God. The wilderness is not beyond the reach of God, though we wonder how we're going to survive. And then the second thing, the cross is more than enough. Your greatest need in this life is not an antidote for COVID-19. Your greatest need in this life is not social isolation. Your greatest need in this life is not um, to be your financial health and provision. Your greatest need in life and death is peace with God. It's not comfort. It's not health. It's not money. It's not friends. It's not companions. It's not pleasure. It's not self-expression. It's not respect. Peace with God is your greatest need, and we do not have that on our own. We have that through Christ, through the blood of the Lamb. Romans chapter 5, I like how the New Living Translation translates it. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we've been justified, brought into a right relationship with God. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. If this verse is true, Based on the victory of Revelation chapter 4, and I believe it is, I've staked my life and my ministry on it. If this is true, brothers and sisters, we need to learn the gospel. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to fight for the gospel. We need to 
take the gospel on as our comfort that we belong to God. In the wilderness, when you want to quit, remember the cross. Remember the gospel. When you want to boast of your goodness, remember the gospel. Remember the cross. When you want, are enjoying the benefits of God, remember the cross. When tears are great and comforts are few, remember the cross. When skies are clear and the wind is to your back, remember the cross. You don't get what you deserve. You get the blessings and the relationship of peace with God because of Christ, the blood of the Lamb that was slain to redeem you and protect you and preserve you until that time where Christ returns. Sing of the cross. Read and meditate of the cross. Give prayers of thanks for the cross. Tell of the cross and be warned. You need to fill yourself with the gospel because of the warning at the end of Revelation 17, or 12, Revelation 12, verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is shelter in the wilderness from the attacks of Satan and the kingdoms that rage against God. And the victory of the cross may empower you to endure I pray that you will repent and believe today for the first time and over and over again. Trust the gospel. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we call you and we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who is good, a God who is um, faithful, a God who cannot be defeated by sin. And Father, we come to you because we know how much we need you. We know that we are insufficient, we are weak, but you are strong. May we proclaim the blood of the Lamb. And may we be faithful to bear witness to the testimony of the word of God. In the face of trials and tribulations, in the face of the wilderness wanderings, may we turn to Jesus that we may have life and have it abundantly. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray, amen.